Thank you, Mr. McNair, and uh, good afternoon. Greetings to all of you, and welcome to our guests. Appreciate uh, your prayers for my voice, so uh, you'll be able to hear a message today. We uh, want to greet all of our brethren around the world who will be seeing this uh, video sermon later on. As uh, Mr. McNair was mentioning, we enjoyed having all the visitors with us last weekend for our winter weekend. And we had visitors from Chicago, from Atlanta, from New Jersey, Portland, Oregon, Laurel, Mississippi, uh, even Anderson and Walterboro, South Carolina. And uh, speaking to all of you around the world, we hope that more of you can visit us next year. Today is January 2nd, 2010, and the world generally makes resolutions for the new year. One of my favorite comic strips is uh, Pickles. Uh, Pickles uh, depicts uh, Grandma and Grandpa. And uh, in this uh, one that was in the Charlotte Observer yesterday, uh, Grandma is talking about her goal for the new year. She says as she's looking into a mirror, my goal this year is to eat less, exercise more, and lose 25 pounds. Then Grandpa says to her, that sounds hard. And she says, maybe, but I can do hard things if I put my mind to it. In fact, then the next scene, in fact, that's going to be my mantra. I can do hard things. Do you want to join me? And Grandpa says, no thanks. My mantra is, I can hardly do things. <laughs> you know, I wonder if the cartoonist had seen Mr. McNair's cover article, Can You Do Hard Things? And I hope that we, uh, all of you will read this. You should be getting your subscription issue this coming week. And, of course, as we face the new calendar year, we want to think about doing hard things. But there's another resolution, and it's a classic one. I've shared it with you before, but I think it's very apropos for this year, and that's Calvin and Hobbes. And, you know, Calvin with his friend the tiger, and they're sledding down the snowy slope. And Calvin is looking back at his friend, uh, the tiger, and he says, Everybody makes the wrong kind of New Year's resolution. All they do is promise to stop bad habits and start good habits. And the tiger, Hobbes, says, well, what's wrong with that? They're continuing to sled down the hill. And Calvin says, it's not enough to change a few little habits. Everybody I know needs a complete personality overhaul. <laughs> and now they go off the cliff, and they're tumbling into the snow. And uh, Calvin says, that's why I'll be spending the remaining days of this year telling people what I hate about them and how they should change. <laughs> and then, uh, then they're getting out of the snow, and Hobbes the tiger says, some of us would be happy to reciprocate. <laughs> and then Calvin says, sorry, my New Year's resolution is not to change a bit. Isn't that the carnal attitude? It just seems like uh, some people do not want to ever change. So I'd like to ask you today, what do you plan to change in your life in 2010? And regardless of world conditions, regardless of circumstances around you, God expects you to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. You all know that scripture, but let's turn to it, Second Peter the third chapter, 2 Peter 3 and verse 18. 
Peter concludes his epistle, but grow. You're not going to grow unless you change, you develop. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. And God gives us grace. We are under grace. And the very last verse of the Bible says the what? I, I know when I asked at the Bible study uh, there a week ago, we had one of our church members here in Charlotte remembered the last verse of the Bible. But grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, I'm sorry, that's not the, the verse, but it is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. We need the grace of Christ. We need his favor. We need his love and his mercy and his blessings. But we, in that atmosphere, in that environment, in that spiritual condition, we need to grow. And we need to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's not only knowledge about him, but a, an intimate knowledge of him. And uh, actually in Second Peter, it starts off with epignosis, which means a full knowledge. Gnosis means knowledge. Epignosis means a full knowledge. Well, I might just turn back there and uh, so you can uh, see that where he says, according to the knowledge, foreknowledge of God, in verse 2, we need to have the knowledge, I'm sorry, that's First Peter, Second Peter, uh, where he tells us that uh, grace and peace be multiplied. Second Peter 1 and verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And he talks about, verse 3, through the knowledge of him. That's not just gnosis. It's epignosis in the Greek. So we have to have that full experiential knowledge because we have that contact and that communication with Christ. So God expects us to grow. And we look back on our life this past year, look back on our life in this past decade. Have you seen any positive changes in your life? Have you thanked God for any growth that you do observe or your family observes in your spiritual character? Have you thanked God for all the benefits that he's poured out upon you, the deliverance and blessings that he's given you this past year? So as we look ahead, some of you have probably already set goals for the calendar year 2010. There are many different categories of goals. There are financial goals, vocational, household, clothing, travel, educational, family goals, social goals, uh, physical health goals. And we all always need to be setting goals. But today we want to consider our spiritual goals. God has given us some awesome benefits. And he's also given us some awesome opportunities as we look forward to the return of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Dr. Douglas Winnale gave us these thoughtful comments in his World Ahead introduction dated uh, December 24th. So I'm quoting as he discusses our year and perspective. Quote, as the world celebrates its traditional year-end holidays, it would be a good time to reflect on the plan of God, on your calling, on the mission that God has given his church, and on the increasingly obvious need for Jesus Christ to intervene in the affairs of mankind and bring peace to the world. Over the next several weeks, listen to the platitudes of world leaders and notice the, how they have little to offer when it comes to real solutions for the major problems that hold humanity captive. As you reflect on the condition of the world and humanity, 
take some time to prayerfully examine yourself to see if you are really growing to become like God in every way, in thought and action, as we heard in the sermonette. So you can serve more effectively with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God. Then formulate some plans to make the coming civil year a year of real spiritual growth. We are now living in the exciting end time prophesied in your Bible. And God has called us and expects us to fulfill our responsibilities and take advantage of some awesome opportunities. What are your personal priorities? What goals will you set for the calendar year? Today we want to consider five spiritual goals. Mr. Maney pointed out we need to focus on the spiritual things. We should even now be practicing these goals. But first, I want to take a brief look at this past year. As you've taken a look at the news magazines and newspapers, they give a retrospective of 2009. What do you remember this past year as lessons learned? Have you learned anything this past year from your experience that will help you to change and to grow? What do you remember from this past year as a treasured moment, something that was special, some way that God blessed you? Most of us rejoiced in the, the Feast of Tabernacles this year. We heard inspiring messages and got to fellowship with new people and brethren. In world news this past year, the Lisbon Treaty was finally ratified, and the European Union took a major step towards its superpower destiny. The news media has basically overlooked the incredible prophetic significance of that event. As we know, these developments are a precursor to the superpower called in your Bible the beast. Let's just take a look at that briefly. Revelation 17:12. As we review last year and the last decade briefly, Revelation 17 and verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. And this is what has happened. These nations have surrendered their sovereignty to a central power in Brussels, Belgium. Incredible. We realize that some of the institutions, the uh, policing, the judicial systems, even within Britain, for example, are no longer controlled by Britain, but controlled by Brussels. And many of the other nations the same, have the same kind of dynamics. They have surrendered their sovereignty. And here we see these are one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. This is not the fulfillment of what's happening right now, the final fulfillment. This is just the genesis or the beginning of what will become or can come a beast power. We can warn the European Union, look, make sure that you do not allow your power to turn into evil and to dictatorship and to control over other nations. But that's what's happened this past year. What other significant events took place this past year. The economic crisis, of course, having its genesis in the United States, became a worldwide crisis. 
Let me just list to you the ten top news stories according to Time Magazine for 2009. And if you listen to these, it will help us all face reality because many people are not facing reality. Number one, America's economic crisis. Now for the non-recovery. I think Time Magazine is trying to put a little humor into it or a little twist. Afghanistan, can the United States avoid a quagmire? Number three, Iran's tumultuous election and its aftermath. Number four, the divisive debate over health care reform. Number five, massacre at Fort Hood, the new face of terrorism. Number six, the death of Michael Jackson. Number seven, Pakistan on the verge of a breakdown. Eight, Mexico's bloody drug war. Nine, H1N1, the swine flu to you. That's fly, That's swine flu to you. They're trying to be cute there. Ten, the end of Sri Lanka's cataclysmic civil war. That was good news in essence. And we have, of course, many brethren there in Sri Lanka. How did the Wall Street Journal visit? That's last year. How did the Wall Street Journal view the last decade? This is from December 21st, their headline. A 10-year dose of reality. What terrorism, war, boom and bust, business scandals, and Susan Boyle taught us. End of quote. And, of course, some of you know Susan Boyle, who uh, did beautifully on one of the uh, brick, brick at Wood, England's uh, uh, amateur hour. So uh, she really was uh, a, a beauty. But here are the uh, ten top news stories, and I'll try to go through them quickly. Uh, for the decade, we've just reviewed Wall Street Journal's for, um, or Time Magazine's the top ten. This is the New York Daily News for the decade. Number one, 9-11, September 11, 2001. Number two, American Airlines Flight 587, which was just two months after 9-11. American Flight 587 crashed into the residential neighborhood of Bell Harbor, Queens, shortly after taking off from JFK Airport on November 12, 2001. All 260 passengers and crew members aboard the Dominican Republic-bound flight died, along with five people on the ground, making it the second deadliest U.S. aviation accident. Number three, London bombings, known as 7-7. That was July 7, 2005, when three bombs exploded on different London underground trains. Fifty-six were killed, 700 injured. Number four, Boxing Day tsunami. Just before 1 a.m., December 26, 2004, the Sumatra earthquake took place, killing 230,000 people and killed in 11 countries, including Indonesia, Sri Lanka, India, Thailand, make it one of the, nas the deadliest national disasters of all time. Number five, Hurricane uh, Katrina, August 29, 2005. Uh, I'll keep go a little quicker here. Number six, Mumbai uh, attacks India's largest city, Mumbai, uh, suffered a series of more than 10 shootings and bombings by Islamic terrorists from November 26 to November 29, 2008. At least 173 people killed, 308 wounded. Number seven, and this is uh, a good news, uh, in, well, it turned out to be good, Flight 1549, Miracle on the Hudson, 
just two minutes after U.S. Airways Flight 1549 took off from LaGuardia Airport on January 15, 2009, headed here for Charlotte. It struck a flock of Canadian geese, damaging both engines. The pilots landed the plane safely on the Hudson River, and 155 people on board were safely evacuated. Number eight in the decade, Obama's inauguration. He was sworn in as the nation's 44th president on January 20, 2009. He became the first African-American to hold the office. The historic inauguration drew over a million people to the National Mall in Washington, D.C., despite the chilly temperatures. Number nine, Spitzer scandal. On March 10, 2008, it was reported that the New York governor, Elliot Spitzer, was client nine in a prostitution ring busted by the FBI. Number 10, the new pope. Pope Benedict XVI of Germany was elected as the successor of Pope John Paul II on April 19th at age 78, making him the oldest person elected pope since Pope Clement II, 1730 to 1740. Pope Benedict XVI made his first trip to the United States as pope in April 2008, stopping in New York to address the United Nations General Assembly and met with the disabled kids and performed a mass at Yankee Stadium. So those are the top ten, and you may have your own top ten. And I would encourage you all to do a diary, or as I have been uh, reading from our relatives, we have a cousin who sends us a year-end uh, summary of the year in the family. And it's always very encouraging, and I don't know how she does it, uh, just on two sides of a, a paper duplexed, uh, gives us a whole summary of the family activities in uh, 2009. And it might be a good thing if you can do that and send that to your relatives as well. And it gives you a, a perspective on the lessons and the benefits and the challenges that you faced last year. In the past decade, we remember our loved ones who died in the faith. We had 20 ministers in the Living Church of God who died in this past decade. One false prophet proclaimed that Dr. Meredith and I would die some time ago. And since we didn't, he has renewed his proclamation. <laughs> he says we're going to die. Well, I have news for him. Hebrews 9, verse 27 tells us that everyone is going to die. It tells that it is appointed for men to die once or to once to die, as in the King James Version. But the Apostle Paul writes of one difference in the matter of dying. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. And again, this gives us a focus on the future, that there will be some who actually will be alive and will be changed. Uh, you can probably technically call that a death because you're no longer living as a physical human being. But uh, anyway, we need to focus on the future and on the goal that God has given us. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. The kingdom of God is not the church. The kingdom of God is not within human beings. When Jesus said the kingdom of God is in you, in the King James Version, it should have been among you. And he was talking to carnal-minded Pharisees. The kingdom of God was not obviously in them. But the kingdom of God was among them in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, so we will inherit the kingdom of God. It is coming soon. 
nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Again, he refers to death as a sleep. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the seventh trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal, we do not have an immortal soul, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. So we look forward to the time when we will either be resurrected or we will be changed for those who live right up into the time of the seventh trumpet when the announcement of Christ's return takes place. My mother died uh, February 6, 2000 at uh, age 90. And when we have friends and relatives who die, it helps us think a little more deeply and helps us to see the big picture of the greatest reality. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. That's in John 11:25. I was driving by uh, the other day, uh, I think it was just even yesterday, driving by a church sign, and the church sign said, will, will you see Jesus in 2010? I think it's a good question, because part of the sermon today is going to focus or at least develop the theme and emphasize the theme of our relationship with Christ. Do you have a commitment in 2010 to have a close, loving, deep relationship with your Savior, with our soon-coming King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and our current High Priest in Heaven at the right hand of God? As it says in Colossians 3, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, so shall we also appear with him in glory. When Christ, who is our life. So I hope, brethren, that you think in terms of 2010 of our relationship with Christ. Let's turn to Hebrews, the 12th chapter. Hebrews 12, which has been quoted here in recent sermons, but one that is so fundamental to our life and our purpose and our goals for 2010. Hebrews 12 and verse 1. After rehearsing all of the men and women of faith in chapter 11, the Apostle Paul goes on and writes, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily ensnare us, Sin is at the door everywhere, and it does easily ensnare us unless we are focused, as we heard in the sermonette. And let us run with endurance, or in the King James, with patience, the race that is set before us. You know, years ago when, uh, oh, what's his name, the uh, aerobics uh, doctor, anyway, some of you, Dr. Cooper, thank you, Dr. Meredith, uh, Kenneth Cooper, uh, wrote the book on aerobics in 1960, no, no, sorry, was that 1968? That long ago, yes. And it was the following summer that uh, we and the faculty at uh, Big Sandy at Ambassador College, it must have been about a group of uh, 12 or 15 of us, and we would meet at the faculty locker room about, uh, you know, 6.30 or 7, 
and we would jog 1.9 miles four days a week and 3.1 miles two days a week. And we did that for about seven or eight weeks. And, you know, there you are. And I remember Mr. Les McCullough and I were jogging mates, and here you go, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And you're just jogging week after week, I mean, mile after mile and, and yard after yard, and you're just rhythmically puffing and puffing. And you realize, yes, I can make it, I can make it, I can make it. And, of course, you all the children here know about the little engine that could. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can make it up over the mountain. Um, I hope uh, most of your children have read that uh, book, although uh, Mr. Partian uh, says that uh, that's not the most popular book in the world. It's the one, um, what's the name of the, the French book? Um, the, the Prince. Mm, merci, monsieur. Uh, the, the Little Prince, I think, is the most popular book in, in all history in, in some respects. Um, it's a little different because it's uh, French, of course, but um, <laughs> it is very stimulating as a book, uh, The Little Prince, very, very interesting. But we have to run that race and we have to focus, as it says in verse 2, looking where? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's the one who's working with you, working with me. And, of course, as we think back of our friends and relatives, it says that they all died in the faith. And when we think of those who will die in the next ten years or in this coming year, we realize that the greatest thing that could be said about any one of us is that we died in the faith. As it says in Hebrews 11 and verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So are we continuing in the faith? Are we running the race, looking under Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, running that race with perseverance, with endurance, and with patience? When we think about our brethren, we, in the past decade, we think of our brethren gunned down at Sabbath services on March 12, 2005. They were martyrs in the faith. Turn to Revelation 14, 12, just to realize the reality as Wall Street Journal faced it. The decade, the last decade, was a dose of reality. And we need to be realistic. Here, 14, 12, Revelation 14, 12. It says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. And we are thank God that the ministers that we know and brethren that have died, that their works do follow them. And we honor them, and we look forward to seeing them in the resurrection. So, brethren, we need to make every day count toward our place in eternity. No greater comment could be made for your life that you lived and died in the faith. So make sure that your goals, your thoughts, your actions, and your deeds aim for the kingdom. And avoid vanity. Strive to add spiritual value to your character.
We have a sermon in our library, sermon number 401, Lasting Values. When Solomon said, everything is vanity, he meant that it has no lasting value. And we need to make sure that whatever we do and think and say adds to godly character that has eternal value, that has lasting value. Otherwise, it's vanity. It's worthless. It has no lasting value. So we need to make every day count. So let's consider five spiritual goals. Make sure that in 2010 and beyond, you are committed to following your living Savior, Jesus Christ. As we read in Hebrews 12, let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Here are five spiritual goals. Number one is know your Bible. As I pointed out in a previous sermon, Christ expects us to know our Bible. In the book of Matthew, for example, Jesus challenged his critics. He said four times in the book of Matthew, Have you not read? And he said two additional times, Have you never read? Referring to the Scriptures. Ephesians 6.17 says that we need to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I'll refer you to sermon number 550, the sword of the Spirit. Let's turn to 2 Timothy, the second chapter. Again, one of the common scriptures you all know, 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. The Apostle Peter is writing to the young evangelist Timothy, and he says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15, rightly dividing the word of truth, where you live it and you understand it, and it is in harmony with the rest of the Scripture. But notice verse 16. But son, shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. And as time goes on, we hear that profane and idle babblings, and some are hooked by it. Well, brethren, I encourage all of you, as I have quite frequently, to subscribe and to take the Bible study course. We recently changed from the uh, dual tone to a full color uh, for our Bible study course, and this is the first issue that we experimented with a glossy paper and, and uh, color, so this is lessons 17 through 20. Uh, tithing, God's financial plan for you. So again, I hope that all of you <clears throat> will take your Bible uh, study course. I know when I was working as a transportation engineer years ago, I uh, tried to, uh, before going to work, uh, I was commuting from Virginia Beach into Norfolk, I would uh, try to answer three questions in the Bible study course that I was taking at the time. So you don't have to feel you have to answer all the questions, but you, you take tiny steps. You set little goals, and you take a little step here and a little step there. And it really gave me a good foundation for the work day to have studied the Bible study course even just for maybe 5 or 10 or 15 minutes before going to work. It was very helpful. So I want to encourage all of you, because let's, again, turn to Luke 12:48. Luke 12:48. You know, 
uh, sometimes we take things for granted and we neglect what God is giving to us. And he's giving to us all of these wonderful study aids, like the Bible study course, Luke 12 and verse 48. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes, and again, this is in the context of the faithful servant and the evil servant, was deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. You have been given tremendous study tools and aids, including the Bible study course. And you've been given, of course, uh, God's guidance through the ministry, through the publications, Tomorrow's World Magazine, Living Church News, and, of course, our Internet uh, and website uh, activities and elements. I challenged you some time ago to understand or to be able to even recite all 66 books of the Bible, and some of you able to do it. Some of you are able to recite it in the original or the inspired order. And I referred you, of course, again to Lesson 2 of the Bible Study Course and to the booklet, Real God, Proofs and Promises, which, I'm sorry, the, the Bible, um, fact or fiction, uh, the centerfold has the outline of the Bible books in the inspired order. And I hope that you will take a mental effort, spiritual effort, to get to know those. So... Goal number one is know your Bible. And how will you answer Christ in the judgment if he were to say, you know, I gave you a, an excellent Bible study course. I gave you Bible study ga uh, guides. Why didn't you use it? What would you answer Christ? So I hope that all of you will take to heart the exhortation to really know your Bible and study it and use the tools that God has given you. Number one spiritual goal, know your Bible. Number two is grow in Philadelphia love. In his anniversary sermon last week, Dr. Meredith emphasized our need to grow in the Philadelphia attitude. In the anniversary sermon, he entitled it, Where We Have Been and Where Are We Going? We had a wonderful perspective of the mission that God has given the church. And he read from Revelation 3. Let's read again from Revelation 3 to the Philadelphia church. If we are to strive to grow in Philadelphian love, we need to be Philadelphian in attitude and spirit and deed and action. Revelation, the third chapter and uh, verse 7. I have uh, in my car right now uh, one of those uh, series of tapes that uh, has the whole Bible on it. And uh, the one that I have is uh, in the car right now is in Revelation. And it's very interesting because instead of just one voice, they will try to interject any time the Apostle John is not writing. And so if it's an angel speaking, it'll be a different voice. And, of course, when it talks about earthquakes, and they'll have the sound effects. And it really makes the book of Revelation a little more alive when you read through it. Revelation 3 and verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. 
I know your work. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength. Have kept my word and have not denied my name. How do you not deny God's name? By doing what he says, by living by the Bible. As it says in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. There are so many that say they are Christian, but they are not. Then they don't really propose to say they are internally Christians. They are Christians nominally for a social advantage or business advantage in the congregations they attend. I've shared with you before the recent polls by um, uh, George Bonner Research and how he was saying out of 77 million uh, born-again Christians that, that say they are born-again Christians, that 50% say they have not had contact with God in a year. Now, how can you say that you're a Christian and not have any contact with God in a year's time? But those are the realities. Those who say they are Jews and are not but lie, indeed I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. We thank God that he does love us. He has unconditional love towards us, even when we go astray, and he corrects us. That's what the correction with love chapter tells us in Hebrews 12. Oh, God has corrected me severely at times. And I wouldn't be here if he hadn't, because he set me back on a right track. We need to ask God for corrections. I told you before, I don't like to ask God for correction. But he, he says, Jeremiah says, correct me, O God, you know, in Jeremiah 10. And so, but with mercy and with judgment, lest I be brought to nothing, Jeremiah says. And I pray that same way. Because you have kept my command to persevere. Yes, we have to persevere. We have to be determined. We have to be committed and to run the race with perseverance and patience and endurance. I also will keep you from the hour of trial, the Greek is petrosmos, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth, the great tribulation. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast that you have that no one take your crown. He who overcomes, yes, in the seven churches, everyone is required to overcome. And God gives us the ability and the way and the power through His Spirit and through Christ in us to overcome. He says, Let it, uh, he says, I will write upon him the name of my God, the new Jerusalem, the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from heaven, from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, Philadelphia designates brotherly love. And Philadelphians will practice unconditional love. You can refer to Sermon 550 on unconditional love. So ask yourself, did I pray today for those in need? Did I give or serve someone selflessly last week? Have I offended a brother or sister by thoughtless words or actions? Have I given to the church financial aid fund, the third tithe fund that supports widows, and the poor. Examine your motivation. Analyze your goals. Are they godly or are they selfish? Dennis the Menace has a friend named Margaret 
and uh, she is, uh, they have kind of a conflict going, and she's a little sophisticated, and Dennis is not. And so Margaret is going to set some New Year's goals for Dennis. She says, I've been working on a set of New Year's resolutions you should seriously consider. Number one, she says to Dennis, stop rolling your eyes every time I say something. <laughs> number two, start attending my tea parties. And number three, develop an appreciation for my ballet, violin, and piano talents. So she hands him the list and says, well, what do you think? The last scene is you see the paper as a paper airplane flying over her head. So we have to ask ourselves, are we selfish or are we magnanimous in our thoughts as we set goals for the new year? And again, I, I'm sorry to come back to Calvin and Hobbes, but he had another wonderful resolution uh, comic strip here. And um, Hobbes and Calvin are walking through the snow, and Hobbes says, Did you make any resolutions for the new year? And Calvin says, No, I'm fine, just the way I am. Why should I change? In fact, I think it's high time the world started changing to suit me. I don't see why I should do all the changing around here. If the new year requires resolutions, I say it's up to everyone else, not me. I don't need to improve. Everyone else does. You know people in your family like that? Well, maybe not. I hope not. And so he asked the tiger Hobbs. Calvin says, how about you? Do you make any res did you make any resolutions? And Hobbes says, well, I had resolved to be less offended by human nature, but I think I blew it already. <laughs> so again, how selfish are we? Are we selfish or we are we magnanimous? Are we outgoing or helpful? Let's turn to Philippians 2 and verse 3. Philippians 2 and verse 3, again, these are scriptures you know, but as we enter the calendar year, you may want to Think more deeply about a commitment rather than just, well, I know that scripture, but will you commit to practicing that scripture is the question. Philippians 2 and verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Do you do that? Do you realize every human being is special? in God's sight, is precious in God's sight, as Dr. Meredith has written. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So let's have that outgoing respect and love towards others. Spiritual goal number two is grow in Philadelphian love. Spiritual goal number three is to recapture the true values of abundant living. Again, these are scriptures you know, but let's turn to John 10. John the 10th chapter. What a contrast Jesus paints in this one verse, John 10 and verse 10. He really, in a way, summarizes in a few words the way of the world, the way of Satan. Verse 10, John 10. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Yes, Christ wants us to have the abundant life. And how do you do that when you're stressed out and facing 
the challenges of a wicked world. Well, of course, you have to do, as it says in Ecclesiastes, there's a time for laughter, there's a time for mourning, there's a time for dancing, there's a time for putting away things and gathering things. Last weekend, we all enjoyed uh, the activities, which included the Bible study, Sabbath services, a dinner dance with entertainment. Then on Sunday, we had about 150 brethren that enjoyed volleyball and basketball, a baked good silent auction, which was my first. I didn't know what that was, but I'll tell you, we the German chocolate cake and the pecan coconut, they are just fabulous, just out of this world. Thank you. Uh, you should have been there. Just a table full of about, you know, 40 beautiful baked items. I can't wait till next year. And, uh, of course, we enjoyed other activities uh, there as well. So what are the true values of sports? Are there true values of dancing and music and entertainment? Well, let's turn to Colossians 3 to find the guideline and the principle of recapturing the true values of abundant living. Oh, one of the principles. You know, back in, uh, of course, I'm a basketball fan and like to play basketball in the past. And I was, uh, you know, started doing the telecast for uh, World Tomorrow back in 1996. And uh, we were playing faculty basketball. It was pretty rugged. And uh, I got someone elbowed me in the eye, and I got a black eye. And I realized, oops, if I'm going to be on television, I better not be playing basketball, at least with these guys. And... Uh, <laughs> So, uh, anyway, but, uh, you know, Mr. Jim Petty tried to put in some true values of basketball. It's supposed to be a non-contact sport. It's not wrestling, as you see on television. And uh, he began to say, look, and I, instead of reaching out, and the next time we have a basketball uh, activity, I want to give some principles of uh, true value basketball. You don't reach out to try to catch the guy. That's a foul. What you have to do is to move your feet and your body so your body moves in front of the person, not your hand. So anyway, um, I hope you'll uh, join my basketball clinic the next time we have one. <laughs> but uh, the point is that, that we at Ambassador tried to, uh, to implement true values of sports. And what are the benefit for it and why, what's the purpose? Teaching term, uh, teamwork, uh, teaching uh, respect for your opponents. Colossians 3, verse 14. But above all these things, he's talking about the character of the new man, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you are called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, just look at yourself and say, just that one verse, how much of that one verse am I practicing? Can I say I'm doing 10% of that or I'm, I'm doing half of that? You know, we need to look at God's Word and say, look, am I going to practice it or am I not going to practice it? And maybe I'm doing a poor job, I need to do a better job. But the key here, verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do. And I think of uh, Dr. C. Paul Meredith, Uncle Paul, you know, he was trying to recapture the true values of shaving. 
and he found out that for him, the Wilkinson sword blade was the best for shaving. And he bought enough of those blades to last him for the rest of his life. But, you know, you think, yes, I've got to, and am I shaving to God's honor and glory? Whatever you do in word or deed, think, are you honoring the name of Christ? It's a real challenge, but that's what God wants us to do. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So again, ask yourself, are my actions honoring God? Am I developing my talents to glorify God? We are, you are the light of the world, Jesus said in Matthew 5.14, and we normally get good comments from our festival sites when the business people and the convention staff see our people and cleaning up after them and not leaving uh, huge messes around, this type of thing. And they realize, well, your people are special. You know, we, we'd like you to come back again. So again, we need to ask ourselves, are we doing the best we can in honoring God and recapturing the true values of abundant living in every aspect of life and applying the laws of radiant health, uh, the seventh of which is build a positive mental attitude. So let's apply the true values of abundant living. Number four ties in with uh, the other three, and it's a challenge. Overcome carnality. Number four, spiritual goal. Overcome carnality. Every one of us must come to see his or her own carnal nature. And I remember one time I was kind of justifying myself <laughs> at an ambassador, talking with an ambassador senior, and he caught me at it, and I, I, I really understood, yeah, well, I was justifying myself. You begin to see your own nature. It's the opposite of a spiritual nature. I won't turn there, but you all know Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things. The heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately wicked, who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. In other words, carnality is going to pay a price. You're going to pay a penalty for it. And the NIV says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. The RSV, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? And you all know Romans 8, 7. The mind, the carnal mind is enmity against God, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. The New King James for Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh or the carnal, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And it's disappointing when we as ministers see brethren who are not overcoming their carnality, but are demonstrating carnality in their language, in their attitude, and in their communications. Some are proud to use coarse, offensive language in emails and in social networking on MySpace and Twitter and Facebook. And they're thinking, well, I'm just, you know, this is between me and my friend. No. When you have three or 300 or 200 or 100 followers, you are getting into the public arena. And you're not setting a good example for God's church. Your messages are very public. And yet it seems you, or not you, but some of you listening here around the world, are trying to impress others by publicizing your carnality among God's people. 
You know, it was just uh, yesterday, no, two days ago, um, the uh, Charlotte Observer, and uh, I mentioned before, the lowest common denominator. You know, what people want is the gross, is the mundane, the double entendre. They just want the carnal. This is uh, a commentary in the Charlotte Observer, December 29th. To get a boy to read, go for gross. This mother says, I was having trouble for my getting my boy to read, so I got him some of these gross comic books. For my Now he's really interested in reading. What are you teaching your children? Our children who've grown up in the church have had the Bible story illustrated, and they have done well, found the Bible story interesting, and they are reading themselves. You read to your children. You don't go for the gross, but that's society. That's the way it's going. As I mentioned before, in uh, true values of humor, every time there's a joke or a story or some kind of pantomime on television or whatever, and people laugh, and again, America's funniest videos, they get these, these people laughing, and you are supposed to laugh with them? I don't laugh with them. When someone goes down and falls off a sled and crashes into a brick wall, and I'm going, ooh, that guy got really hurt, and everyone else is laughing their head off. Now, what kind of true values of humor do we have in our society? And you have to test those waters of carnality all around us, the media that uh, are around us. In Jeremiah 10, uh, verse you know, 1710, I quoted, I, the eternal, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. And even in language, let's turn to Ephesians 5, Ephesians, the fifth chapter. It seems that there's a certain level of, you know, for me to be accepted by my buddy, I have to be as carnal and as gross as he is or she is. So I'm going to use carnal, gross, crude language. Don't do that if you are a member of the living church of God. Don't do that if you respect the word of God and you want to obey it, you want to recapture the best in life, the true values. I taught my speech students for years. Upgrade the level of your expression. And that was particularly during the time when, you know, the, uh, the beat, no, it wasn't the Beatles, the, uh, uh, any of the hippies, you know, they had a four-word vocabulary. Like man, you know. Like man, you know. Like man, you know. They, they put different emphasis on the four words. It couldn't seem they could upgrade the level of their expression. And that was the, almost the totality for some of their communication skills. But, uh, you know, I had a friend one time who, uh, you know, it was before I was converted. We were driving, he was driving, and I tried to uh, have some uh, substandard humor. And he totally ignored me. I thought, hmm, if I'm going to be a friend to him, I better come up to his level. He's not going to come down to my level. It's like Mr. Maney was saying here, that uh, when he was in a group of people trying to help these people, look, we need to talk about something spiritual here, not something that's uh, carnal and uh, degrading and, you know, unbiblical. Here in Ephesians, uh, the fifth chapter, I can, verse 1, Ephesians 5. And verse 1, Therefore, as imitators of God, as dear children, 
And walk in love, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting. It just seems that, look, I want to be accepted by my friend. Therefore, I'm going to have coarse jesting just like he does. And that will make me accepted. Who do you want to be accepted by? Jesus Christ was macho, but he didn't get into a bunch of fights. He stood up for the truth. That's how he was strong and masculine. And, of course, women need to stand up for the truth as well. I had a sermon on that just a few weeks ago or a couple months ago. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, unclean in words and thoughts, nor covetous man who is an idolater, who has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God, you need to repent. You need to change your pattern of communication. And begin to ask the question, as Dr. Meredith posed some years ago, what would Jesus do? And then later, what would Jesus really do? Would he talk that way? Would he talk gross? No, he would not. So you need to repent of those around the world who may be listening to this and upgrade the level of your expression in the giving of thanks, is what he says. We have to clean up our minds. So how can you overcome carnality? You look to Christ, as we saw in John fifteen three. He says, Now are you clean through the word which I have spoken unto you? As uh, Again, that quotable quote by Dr. Meredith, Saturate your mind with the word of God. You know, one other characteristic in overcoming uh, carnality is to choose to fear God. We've said on the telecast here, quoting the Apostle Paul, why are the nations the way they are? There is no fear of God before their eyes. The way of peace they do not know. It's in Romans, the third chapter, I believe. How do we overcome? We have choose the fear of God. Let's take a look at Proverbs 1, verse 29. Proverbs 1. I'll tell you, uh, we are in the end time. We are under judgment. We can't just delay our conversion and say, well, I, th I think, you know, I'll, I'll get converted in the next, another two years or four or five years from now. The time's getting short. Proverbs, the first chapter, verse 29, Proverbs 1. Here God is talking about the characteristics of fools and how they're always thinking about doing the dirty, doing the wrong, doing the deceptive, trying to do the uh, hurt, hurtful thing. And notice in verse 29, Proverbs 1, Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would have none of my counsel and despised every rebuke. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled with full of their own fancies. They had a choice. We all have a choice. And I choose the fear of God. The fear of God is clean. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. 
Let's take a look at Proverbs 14.6. If you want to overcome carnality, choose the fear of God. Proverbs 14.16. Proverbs 14 and verse 16. A wise man fears and departs from evil. Oh, you fear God, you fear the penalty for your carnality, but you reverence God and you understand that He is the omnipotent God, the omniscient God, the omnipresent God, that He is all power, that He rules supreme, that He controls all the unlimited galaxies that are traveling out into space at 100 million miles an hour. He controls them, and he knows the names of every astrobody. That's how powerful God is, and you need to choose to reverence that God. He is love, but he is also all-powerful and almighty. Here we are in Proverbs 14, verse 16. A wise man fears and departs from evil, but a fool rages and is self-confident. Revelation 19.5, Revelation 19.5 it's very important because it's a trend in our end time. In all of us, I have carnal nature. The Apostle Paul struggled with his carnal nature, and he describes that in Romans, the seventh chapter. And he says that with my mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. He said, how wretched man that I am. How will I save this body of death? And he says, it shall be through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how you overcome. Revelation 19.5. Notice, who is going to be in the wedding supper? Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of many thunderings, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent, all-powerful, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. If you want to be ready for the wedding supper, choose to reverence God. And if you have trouble with that, read the booklet, Real God, Proofs and Promises, and that can be of help to you. And how else? Just one other scripture on overcoming carnality. 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. 1 Corinthians 10. No, God gives us power. If we fear God, we can depart from evil. And we have, as it says in Romans 8, in Romans 8, verse 37, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. We can more than overcome through Christ in us. Romans, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common demand. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So again, God gives us promises. He will limit our penalty if we want him to. If we cry out for mercy. I've told you how many times I've cried out for mercy. And I, I mean, several times it says in James, if any are afflicted among you, let him pray. Any of you marry, sing psalms. And everywhere I was the other night, I was uh, the middle of the night, I was ill and uh, kept begging God for mercy. And uh, after a little while of uh, a little purging, uh, I felt much better. But I, I kept praying for God's mercy.
Yes, God will help us to overcome our carnality. We replace it with God's spirituality. So spiritual goals are much more important than physical goals. We have to set our mind on the Word of God. And if you are struggling, ask Christ to convert you. Set your mind to seek things above the truth, the true abundant living, as it says in Colossians 3.1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. So spiritual goal number four was overcome carnality. Number five is fulfill our mission. Matthew 28, verse 18, you know the mission that Christ gave the church called the Great Commission. In fact, some Bibles have that as a subhead to this section. Matthew 28, in fact, the New King James does. Matthew 28, verse 16. Well, I should have taken some tea long ago, but I didn't want you to miss a word here. Matthew 28, verse 19. Well, let's start with verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And now, as you know, we've just added to our website six other languages, uh, Arabic, Hebrew, uh, Swahili, Russian, um, what else? Chinese and Hindi. So anyway, we've added those uh, six languages to uh, our website. You see the uh, Cyrillic uh, letters at the bottom of our web page, and you can click on it, and uh, you can see a message in that particular language. You may not be able to understand it, but you can at least see the message there. We're going into all the world, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Yes, we can overcome by claiming God's promises, and he's promised us not to leave us nor forsake us. Dr. Meredith wrote in the uh, Living Church News, May-June 2009, seven mission statements. We need to know our mission, be committed to our mission, who we are, what we are, what we're dedicated to. He writes, Dear brethren, I hope that all of you will catch the vision and join with us in fulfilling the sevenfold commission. Of course, it could be worded or structured differently, but these key elements of Christ's commission to his church, as outlined above, can be broken down into seven parts. One, preach the gospel of the kingdom and the true name of Jesus Christ. Two, preach the end-time prophecies and the Ezekiel warning to the Israelitish peoples. Three, feed the flock and build all our members to the stature of Jesus Christ as best we can. And I hope this sermon will contribute toward that. Be examples to the church of God and to the world and of Christ's way of life. Five, learn and practice servant leadership in all our dealings with others. Six, Restore apostolic Christianity and all that this implies. Number seven, build an atmosphere of radiant faith within God's church. Dr. Meredith concludes, again, why are we here? What is God's work in our commission all about? I hope that the above explanation will help and inspire all of us to understand why we exist and what we ought to be doing as the living church of God. Let us then move ahead on all fronts, 
and honor God and our Savior Jesus Christ as we zealously fulfill these vital elements of the Great Commission. Please study, meditate, and pray about these points and ask God to help you build them into your daily lives so that this work of God may go forward with zeal and power as never before. So, brethren, as we face 2010, let's consider these five spiritual goals. Number one was know your Bible. Number two was grow in Philadelphia love. Number three was recapture true values of abundant living. Number four is to overcome carnality. And number five is to fulfill our mission. So in 2010, let's continue to run the race with endurance and perseverance. And Jesus said in Revelation 3.10, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So we have been given a heavenly mission, one with great joy, one with great fulfillment and great reward. We've reviewed briefly 2009. We saw the 10 top stories of the past decade. And this year and the next 10 years will move by very swiftly. Can we face the future in faith and how can we do that? We can do that by living one day at a time, by living each day by faith, and by renewing our love for God and Christ every day. And we can face the future by striving to overcome daily with the Spirit sword, God's Holy Spirit, by reading the Bible and saturating our mind with the Word of God, and by dedicating ourselves to achieve these spiritual goals. So let's stay focused on these spiritual goals. And may God bless you all in achieving these spiritual goals so that we can all grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ in 2010 and beyond.